So if you have got one of these church Bibles, 1,154, and we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I tell you what, I will actually start from the end of chapter 12, because that's where it splits in this Bible. Uh, So it starts in verse 31 of chapter 12. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. For the last 76 years, My birthday has been in the twilight zone. Uh, It was yesterday. And uh, my 21st birthday, which back in the days was a very important birthday, my my mother invited all my relatives to come on the 29th of December to my birthday, and nobody came. The twilight zone. (laughs) It really does exist. In the years before... George Clooney was really, really famous and had a house in Sonning Common near Reading. Um, He was acting in an American TV series which I loved very much called ER, Emergency Room. Uh, And one of the things, it was in the days before we, my wife and I discovered subtitles, uh, which we always have on now even though we don't need them. And uh, it was in the... Di- they shouted things. They would bring in somebody who'd been shot or hit by a car or whatever, and they're bringing them into the hospital on a gurney. There'd be somebody on the, actually kneeling on the gurney, pumping their chest, trying to keep them alive. But they would be shouting out various things uh, that I didn't really understand. One was BP. I think that was blood pressure. The other one, which puzzled me for years, was pulse sock. And I thought, why are they... 
bothering about his socks when he's obviously near to death. And it wasn't until this very morning as I was preparing that I, I looked it up. It's pulse oximetry. Is that right? Pulse oximetry. Pulse ox. They're, they're what we call vital signs. From the Latin vita, which simply means life. They're life signs. That's when, when the body's in a strong and healthy condition, then these vital signs uh, are indicators of health or even of illness. Uh, and that principle of life signs is important in Christianity and in the life of the church. Are certain signs of life in an individual Christian, and there are certain signs of life in a congregation, because one of the pictures of the church in the Bible is that it's a body. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And everyone who's a true Christian, who's been converted, who has received the life of the Spirit through trusting the gospel, uh, is, is a member, a, 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 a part of that body. And the New Testament teaches us that it's possible to have healthy churches and not so healthy churches and sick churches and churches that are near to death. If you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, there are seven churches there. They're all found in Turkey. One or two of them are really healthy. One or two of them are not so good. Got, got a little bit of sickness and, and one at least is near to death. The church in Laodicea. So the, the, the varying conditions of health and sickness uh, indicated by these vital signs. Now, if you listen to the Apostle John, the, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, for instance, he says in 1 John chapter 4, you remember that series we had on 1 John, anyone who does not love does not know God the sign of life, or it's a sign of death. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John chapter 4. So there are various indicators of life, and we're going to look at one today, maybe the most important one. Because when the Apostle Paul, Dr. Paul, felt the pulse of the church in Corinth, he had a grim look on his face and shook his head about to give them the diagnosis. It resulted in the longest letter in the New Testament. Shook his head because one of the vital signs of the Corinthian church indicated that something very unhealthy was happening. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the greatest vital sign in the life of an individual Christian or in the life of a congregation. I've got three points, obviously, because I'm a preacher. The first one is love's core importance. Love's core importance, verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, this is page 1154, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Most of you here this morning have had the experience of being disappointed or wounded at the hands of a professing Christian, crushed by their condemnation, wounded by their criticism, hurt by their neglect, cut to the heart by something they've said. It's one of the tragedies 
of church life. I became a Christian in 1960. So I've lived long enough to see all kinds of hurts and wounds and sorrows caused by one Christian hurting another. Christian church in Corinth was a brilliant and gifted congregation. If you were a scholar on your way to a business on the way to a conference or a businessman on your way to a to a conference in Rome, you called in there in Corinth on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, you'd left thinking, what a marvelous church. Uh, I wish I was a church like this back in Laodicea or wherever you came from, Ephesus. This church at the time of this letter's writing was four years old. It was a church plant. It was an Acts 29 church like we are. It was an FIC church like we are. It had been carved out of a pagan society by the preaching of Jesus Christ by the Apostle Paul. It wasn't only a brilliant church, it was an important church because it stood on the border between the Asian world and the European world, between the Jewish world and the Gentile world, and a flourishing and healthy church in this part of Greece augured well for the gospel's cause elsewhere. And if you look at chapter 1 and verses 4 to 7, you'll see that the Apostle Paul describes this church in pretty glowing terms. Let's just uh, have a look back at that. Chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So their gifts abounded in various areas of church life. He wanted to hear a good sermon, go to Corinth. You never leave that Sunday evening service without feeling that your mind had been blessed and your heart warmed. But there are serious problems in this church. Let me just rehearse some of them. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, there were quarrels. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, many of them were behaving like unconverted people. They were infantile. They were given to jealousy. There was a contentious spirit. Chapter 6, verses 5 and five to 6, one Christian was taking another Christian to the secular courts over something that should have been settled in the life of the church. On top of that, they were tolerating incest in one family while at the same time boasting about their moral liberty. They were putting on a selfish display of greed at the Lord's table when some of them were feeding their faces and getting fat and other families were waiting for the food bank to open, going home hungry. And Paul is shouting out the blood pressure and the pulse socks and the temperature of this church and he shouts loudest of all in chapter 13. The first four verses, he says some absolutely devastating stuff in three key areas of church life. What you say, what you know, what you get done. What you say, the Corinthians were a congregation who enjoyed using the gift of tongues. They could speak, I think this is what it means, they could speak human languages that they'd never learned through the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it may be that not, some of them not only felt that they could speak in the languages of men and women, but they could speak in the tongues of angels. A lot of tongue speaking going on in the church of Corinth. There was a buzz of excitement around the church over the great things the Holy Spirit was doing in them through the, the gifts of inspired speech. Is Paul impressed? 
Well, he looks him in the eye and he says, you know that pagan temple down the road which is so noisy as the priests and the people hit their gongs and ring their bells and make a noise to get the attention of their sleepy gods? Well, you're just like that in your Christian meetings because there's an absence of love in this congregation and although you've got these noisy gifts, they mean nothing. Now, I've been... I was in a, a Buddhist temple in Nepal some years ago and a monk came out of his house which was part of the temple complex and he was clear that he was wanting one of his kids to come in for dinner and he was shouting at the same time he was ringing a prayer gong praying to his God dong 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 so I'm not sure that that is biblical prayer that's my Reaction. That's what Paul is saying. If you've got all these wonderful gifts, even though they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and you're habitually unloving, then you're just like the gong that's being belted down in the pagan temple. When God listens to your worship, it's no more than a pagan noise to him. Maybe in good voice this morning. You are in good voice. And you've made a noise in the presence of God and you've uttered wonderful truths in the presence of God. But if you are habitually unloving, just like a pagan gong being banged, serious stuff, isn't it? It's in the realm of what you say. There's also this realm, what you know, in verse 2. We're told that these people had the gift of prophecy and faith. Wouldn't you like that sometimes? To have people in the church who could answer your deepest questions with a a special word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't it be great to have people who could trust God so firmly in, in situations that look impossible, that mountains are destroyed by their faith, or to be able to say in a counselling situation, your problem, sister, is that you stole 20 pounds out of your husband's wallet at 6.30 yesterday evening. How did you know? Or to be able to so trust God in faith and to say, by this time next week, Emmanuel Epsom will have received £500,000 in a donation and we will be able to pay the pastor for at least a month. <laughs> and keep his wife in the custom to which he's never been <laughs> be great to have somebody like that, wouldn't it? But to have these things and to be habitually unloving, to be a great theologian, to know stuff, to, to be able to remember stuff, to say stuff, to, to understand the great theological doctrines. If you're habitually unloving, it's absolutely of no value. Now, some of you here might know a lot. You might read a lot. You might understand a lot about the things of God You've got theological certainties coming out of your ears. But if you're habitually unloving, it's useless. What you say, what you know, thirdly, what you do. This is getting stuff done. Uses two magnificent illustrations of sacrifice. Here's someone who gives all that he has to the poor. And here's someone who surrenders to death in the flames for the gospel's sake. One gives away his substance, the other surrenders his life. From a distance, it looks stunning. 
and admirable. But if those people are not living in loving relationships with their fellow Christians, they gain nothing. It's all been a waste of time. So, do you see love's core importance? It doesn't matter how gifted your speech, how deep your knowledge, how impressive your behavior, how many chairs you put out and bring back. If you are consistently disobedient in the area of love, you are nothing, you gain nothing. And you are nothing. Now I need to point out that I don't think the Apostle Paul is speaking about those failures that we're all guilty of and that we regret and, and ask, ask forgiveness for. I believe he's speaking about the habitual presence of unloving attitudes in a heart or in a congregation. Habitual. Are there people in the church, in this church, who've been hurt by your consistent criticisms? Your frequent and selfish attacks on them? Love's core importance. The second thing is love's continued existence, verses 8 to 13. Lots of things are going to pass away, but love is never going to pass away. Love's continued existence. One of the signs of an infantile mind is that you lose sight of what's really important. I don't know why it is, but as I've got older, I've become a little bit more grumpy about infantile attitudes. I forget that I was once infantile myself and still am from time to time especially when Liverpool are at the top of the league. I'm thinking of taking a gap year and out to Mongolia. But um, in case they win the league, that would be intolerable. And Rob, you can shut up right now, bro. <laughs> but when I was a young lad, I pestered my mum and dad one, before one Christmas. I must have been five or six years of age or even less. I pestered them for a model fort and an army of toy soldiers. A great day came. It was a massive parcel. You know, this is the thing that's sad for me. We were in my dad's uh, parental home, in, in, in my grandparents' home. They, they both died in their 50s of, of, of uh, liver disease because of alcoholic poisoning. That's the kind of family we came from. They once pawned my dad's best clothes in order to buy whiskey. So, you know, I didn't grow up in a model family in Manchester. But... Um, I, and I have no memory of my grandparents, but I have a memory of that fort. It's really sad, you know, it, it, infantile. And I got this fort, and, and I ripped open the parcel, and it was a fort, a wooden fort, and with soldiers. And when the initial excitement had died down, I, I got a cracker, you know those Christmas crackers? And I pulled it, and out came a hair, a woman's hair grip fashioned into a catapult with an elastic band on it. I played with it the whole day and neglected the fort and the soldiers. Somebody once gave me, as a young boy, gave me a World War I actual rifle from the trenches. It was heavy, so I swapped it for a water pistol. <laughs> Infantile, not knowing what's important. Have no idea of the value of a gift. In the midst of all these marvelous features, of the life of the Christian church in, in Corinth, 
There are only, and, and in the world today, there are only three things that matter, faith, hope, and love. Verse 13, faith, hope, and love. Whenever the true gospel brings a human being to new life in Christ, it produces those three powerful realities. Trust in Christ and his cross, faith, hope in the God's eternal future in a new creation, hope and, in, and love, love for God and love for his people. Everything else is a lesser thing. Tongues will cease. The gift of knowledge will pass away. Prophecy is only partial and will give way to the full reality, the glorious and great realities of the work of God in a human being of faith, hope, and love. The Corinthians were more, more obsessed with a hair grip, a hair grip catapult, than by this massive fort of the glorious gospel of God. It's infantile. The sign that you've been taught by the Spirit is that you value faith in the past work of Christ. The sign that you have been taught by the Holy Spirit is that you have a hope of the eternal future with the Lord Jesus Christ and you have a love for the person of Christ above everything else. No matter how gifted you are and how marvelous you think your church is. And amongst these three, love is the greatest. Because one day you'll stop believing because faith will give way to sight. You won't need to trust anymore. You, you'll have it in reality. You won't need to hope anymore because what you've hoped for will be yours in an eternal present. But you'll never, in all the countless generations of eternity, you'll never cease to experience and to know love. Love will never come to an end because God is love and as long as God exists, love will always matter more than anything. So the vital, the vital sign in the life of a church is that we value and practice and nurture love amongst ourselves as the highest and best thing. And if anything becomes more important than this, in your agenda, in our agenda, then there's a sign that something's really, really wrong in the life of a church. And I would go as far as to say this. I've I became a pastor in 1968. I was too young, but I was, I was only five. 1968, I became a pastor. And I would go as far as to say this, and I'm going to be guilty of hyperbole, but then I've got to an age where I don't care. <laughs> every problem, every problem in every marriage, every relational problem in a Christian congregation is down to a failure in 1 Corinthians 13. And sometimes when couples have come to me for marriage counseling, I've, I've felt like saying, have you not read 1 Corinthians 13? Poke them in the eye and see if they like that. But that's not loving. Love's, love's continued existence. And then thirdly, and finally, although there are just one or two little subpoints <laughs> hidden away, love's characteristic expression. Verses 4 to 8, love's characteristic expression. Love is patient. Love is kind. I'm going to read it to you from Eugene Peterson's The Message. He, Eugene Peterson went to glory a few weeks ago. Whatever you think of The Message, it's, it's got some great phrases in it. Love never gives up. 
Love cares more for others than for self. That would revolutionize a lot of marriages, wouldn't it? Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. One of my favorite expressions in marriage is, you always say that. I've been counting. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. That's a great one, isn't it? Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back. I'm just going to take three examples of these great words. I haven't got time for all of them. I'm going to take three. The first one is patience. Love is patient. It's one of my favorite Greek words. I don't remember many from my time in college, but I remember this one, makrothumia. It means a long time coming to the boil. Makrothumeo. A long time boiling over. Love is patient. But with whom do you need to be patient? Well, you need to be patient with people who test your patience. With people who do or say something which makes you want to let your temper, your anger, your your resentment, your irritation boil over, come to the surface. You can be patient. I can be patient till the cows come home with someone who always gives me what I want, treats me how I like. Don't ever be patient with them. Test is when, how do you conduct yourself in a relationship with someone in the church who hurts you, you don't like. How real is your love then? What do you do with the anger which boils up after, after the hurt? What do you do with that rising spirit of irritation that makes you want to get back at them. Behind their back, usually. Put them in their place, make them look small, divorce yourself from them. What do you do then? Love is patient. If there's an absence of love at that point, that when you bring your worship to God, it's possible that you are nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Doesn't matter how sacrificially you serve the church, how many chairs you put out, how many chairs you put away. Without patience, you gain nothing. It's pretty serious, isn't it? But it's got to be true for this reason. Because you say you love the Lord Jesus. And you say you want to be like him. Well, how patient has he been with you? Over the years, where would you be today if he treated you as you deserve? Patience is a choice. It's a spiritual attitude and choice based on the fact that you have been treated with the eternal patience of a Savior who loves you. Love is patient. Love keeps no record of wrongs. The Lord Jesus, you say, has saved you and whom you love. How long is the list of things that you've done to offend him? And how long is his memory of the times that you've sinned against him in thought, word, and deed? Dishonored his name. 
failed to glorify his person. Well, there is no list. He remembers your sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from him. And how did he wipe his memory clean of all your impurities and that record of your sins by dipping it in his own blood on the cross? He wiped it clean. He carried your sins in his body up to the cross in order that the record of your wrongs might be wiped out eternally. And it's kept clean by daily acts of mercy and kindness. When you say, I'm sorry, Lord, immediately there's forgiveness because of the work of the cross. So if you keep a list in your heart, in your mind, of all the things that people have done to annoy you, it's going against the spirit of the Lord Jesus, especially if you're allowing it to fracture a relationship. He would not do that with you. Why would you do it with somebody else? It keeps no record of wrongs. And this is my favorite. Because it's onomatopoeic. I've always wanted to say that in public. <laughs> Love is not puffed up. The Greek word is fusio. It's, it sounds like what it represents. Fusio. It's used seven times in the Greek New Testament. It's of six times in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. And it's the balloon imagery. Here's a bit of limp, unimpressive red rubber, but you fill it with air under pressure and you hang it from the door and suddenly it looks pretty handsome. I'm a red balloon. I'm up here. Look at me. But that... Are you laughing at or with your father? <laughs> I look pretty handsome, but there's no real substance. And it's puffed up. It thinks of itself more grandly than it ought to think. Well, there will be some of us here with a critical spirit. And uh, there will be something like this comes up Really, those, those people, that church, that pastor, those elders, that volunteer, they're so dreadful, they're so unbearable. Where does that critical spirit, unloving spirit, come from? How is it that we can look down from our exalted position upon those other pathetic Christians and continue to dismiss them? Surely, it's got to come from self-inflection, hasn't it? from being puffed up, from fuseo. We feel high and mighty enough to look down on them. I'm at the top of the door. I can look down on these poor people who come in. But look at me, I'm red and fat and oh. We don't know much when that happens. We don't know much about a heart which says to me, you are the chief of sinners. But God showed mercy to you in Jesus Christ. How can we have a proud heart that sits in judgment upon others when we were the chief of sinners? If we have a puffed up spirit which consistently looks down in rejecting judgment over this and that person or even over the whole church, 
there's a danger that we're nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We say that we're in love with the one who humbled himself to the death of the cross that he might show compassionate mercy to men and women, to the most obnoxious of people. We say we love him. So, brothers and sisters, at the end of this year, looking forward to the next year, if we're ever tempted to strut our stuff, our inflated sense of self-dignity, our feelings of who do they think they are to treat me like this, you're ever tempted to feel like that. If you're feeling like it now, take a look, a slow look at the Prince of Glory dying for you. Love is not puffed up. It chooses to humble itself for the sake of the one who has offended me. It chooses not to give the devil a foothold in my simmering anger. It chooses to seek reconciliation. It chooses to be kind to the person who's been unkind. It chooses to reach out a hand or to risk godly confrontation. Love is a choice. Jesus made the choice to love you not because you were so lovable and adorable that he couldn't resist you. Come on, get over it. He chose you when you were offensive, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Love is a choice. And Jesus made the choice for you, the vital sign that we belong to his body and that his body belongs to him is this kind of love. Core importance, continued existence, characteristic expression. Let me finish with Tim Keller. Famous words, love forms and flows in the gospel heart as we experience two deep realities. One, that I am more sinful than I ever imagined. The gospel does that for you. It shows you that at the level of your heart and mind, you're deeply offensive to God. You see clearly that you are no better than other human beings. And two, that you are more loved than you thought possible. You've been loved by someone so passionately that he went to the death of the cross to rescue you, adopt you, care for you, and protect you, and bring you at last to the joy of heaven, all as a free gift. When you know these two realities, meditate on them often, see them pictured in the Lord's Supper, experience them again and again through the work of the Holy Spirit, and begin to love because you've been loved. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we can't uh, expose our hearts and minds to um, a message and a passage like this without at the end coming to say that we're sorry. Please forgive us our multi multiple failures. Forgive us if we have habitually um, carried a heart, an irritated heart towards another brother or sister in Christ. We pray that in our homes, in our marriages, uh, in our parenting, in our being children, in our church life, we pray that we might be increasingly growing in the knowledge of the love of God and in the expression of the love of God to others. Please help us. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.